Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast they could not stop, Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. This week it's a Line of Duty special, the entire podcast packed with twists and turns. Now some of our regular visitors, there's uh, 53 of you in America now, um, that nice new one in Prague, hello, uh, and the other new one in Malta. Um, now you may not know what Line of Duty is, right? Well, it's a TV cop show with this crazily convoluted storyline, uh, and it's taken Britain by storm. Everyone, and I mean everyone, has been talking about it. So we need to talk about it too. And when I say we, I mean me, Valdemar Inushtak, art critic of the Sunday Times. Or if you want to shorten me, and many do, you can call me Waldy. And I'm joined on this podcast by a man who loves mysteries as much as a squirrel loves its nuts. Maybe even more so. By trade, he's an art detective, sniffing out lost masterpieces where no one else can see them, and putting names to unnameable artists. His own name, he claims, is Bendor Grosvenor. But anyone who's seen Line of Duty will know that simply can't be true. No one is called Bendor Grosvenor. So, Bendy, are you going to tell us who you really are this week, or are you going to keep up this pretense? No, Waldy, I shall always be a riddle wrapped in an enigma, as somebody <laughs> famous once said. But you know, I haven't actually seen any of Line of Duty. Have you watched it? No, don't tell me that. Everybody's seen Line of no, Duty. No, I haven't seen it. Did um, you get it up in Scotland? Hasn't everybody been going crazy about it like they have been doing down here in London? They have been. But, you know, I, I'm, I like watching these sets when they're all over and done with because I'm quite impatient. I can't be dealing with waiting a whole week for another episode. So I like to wait till they're all out and then binge watch them in order. Um, but I tell you, actually, before we do that, can I quickly um, say a large pat on the back to the National Gallery? Because what I have been doing this week instead of watching Line of Duty, is I had a look at the National Gallery's website. They've got a wonderful virtual tour on. It's called Director's Choices. And it's a selection of about 20 pictures chosen by the National Gallery director, Gabriele Finaldi. And the really clever thing about it is that it's a wonderful virtual exhibition. Waldo, we started this podcast series lamenting the fact that in our lockdown isolation, very few museum websites had actually managed to crack the idea of a virtual exhibition, something you can go and wander around digitally, look at pictures in close-up, get some good audio and text to tell you what you're looking at. And finally, the National Gallery, a week before the lockdown ends, has cracked it. And I think it's just worth us mentioning that because it's really super and people can go onto their website. It's all free to look at uh, and it's really good. And I hope, I hope we don't have any more lockdowns, but uh, I hope that more museums can embrace this um, technology. It's, it's run by a company called Moyosa Spaces, which is a Dutch company. And hopefully that means that more of us can enjoy great art virtually wherever we are. Hmm. Do you know, Bendy, I think we have just put our thumb on the difference between me and you, right? So you have not seen Line of Duty this week, even though everybody else in Britain has, including me. And I haven't seen the National Gallery film that you like so much, um, The Wandering Through the Spaces by the Director, uh, even though I've, I've been told about it and I'm sure it's really good. So um, I think we have to, a bit of a deal here. I'll tell you what, I will go and look up the National Gallery film if you make an effort very soon to see some of Line of Duty. How about that? That's a good deal, isn't it? Okay, deal. 
Okay. Anyway, not only is it a packed podcast this week, it's also full of new stuff, Bendy. People have often written in to say how much they enjoy hearing it when you and I have an argument, you know, conflict. They love it out there. Can't think why. Uh, but to keep these bloodthirsty listeners happy, we're launching a new section this week where Bendor and I go up against each other, mano a mano, in a battle for the truth. So that's Waldy versus Bendy coming up in a moment. Um, and speaking of the truth, by the way, Bendy, if you want to see it as well as hear it, well, you know where you need to go, don't you? You need to go to the zczfilms.com webpage because right there, there's a podcast special page. And everything's on there. All the art that we talk about, it's all illustrated and annotated. It's everything you want is there. First though, Bendy, line of duty and the hunt for criminality in art. <laughs> I fought the law, and the law won. So, Bendy, you see, the cops are after us. Um, what are we going to do? I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to investigate the way that art has treated issues of criminality and incarceration. So, uh, prisons and bad guys. The whole notion of being locked up. They keep popping up in art. So, what we've done is we've chosen five telling examples of that to discuss and uh, Inspector Bendy, uh, you're going to start us off, I hope, with Piranesi, right? Um, and the case of the mysterious imaginary prisons. What can you tell us about those? Can I be Chief Superintendent Bendy? Oh, OK, then, Chief Superintendent Bendy. Yeah, you can be Detective Sergeant Waldy. No, um, I'm a pro. I just want to be Constable <laughs> Valdemar. <laughs> so this is an etching part of a series of uh, 16, eventually, uh, made by Piranesi, first published in 1750. And it is um, a rather spectacular and otherworldly uh, imagined prison. Um, we see lots of arches and staircases going hither, thither, uh, it's not far off one of those, uh, is, it, is it called M.C. Escher? Those, yes, yes. Yeah, it's not far off one of those. I was going to mention Escher, but you got in there first. Yes, oh, they, they okay. are a bit like that, yes. Yeah, and uh, the fact that it's an etching, it's, it's obviously in black and white, and that uh, cr that adds to the sort of the spookiness and the otherworldliness of the prison we see. And we are down at the very bottom of the prison. This is a very important fact in uh, Piranesi's prison scenes. We're always at the bottom and looking up. We're meant to be down in the dungeon. And climbing up of the various staircases and, and standing in the doorways and the dungeon doors are little indeterminate people. And they help create this the scale of the overwhelming prison we're in. And it feels quite oppressive. Uh, it doesn't feel as if we're about to get out anytime soon. But these were these were very popular prints, weren't they? Mm, um, mm. They, they sold like hotcakes in the mid-1800s. They, mid did, they did sell like hotcakes. That's why he brought out two editions. So I think the original... Uh, 1750 edition I think there were 14 of these weird scenes and then he expanded it with a couple more so it was 16 in all in, in the next edition which incidentally he, he brought out on his own printing press um, so he was another one of these pioneers of printing Piranesi um, so he, he opened his own print workshop and, and piled out these uh, these fantastically strange um, images of, of imaginary prisons um, it's, listen, this is Rococo art, right? And look at the dates, 1750, 1760. Rococo art, right in the middle of the Rococo. And yet it's dark and threatening and different. And I mean, it's 
it's had an enormous um, impact. I mean, this, this is amongst the most influential set of prints ever made, really. I mean, we can go on to things that this influenced. I mean, stuff like Indiana Jones movies, you know, like, you know, when everybody runs into one of those weird spaces and there are portcullises and wheels turning of wood and you step on something and the wall falls off and those weird, strange, uh, spooky spaces mm. that you get in, in games as well, you know, all those video games. All of that has the mood of Piranesi because these are impossible imaginary prisons. And although they are about incarceration in the sense that they're called, you know, the carceri, the prisons, they're really more about a kind of strange amalgam of history. Because uh, Piranesi, who was born in Venice, moved, moved to Rome, where he, I guess he must have encountered the Forum in Rome, you know, where all the ruins of the Roman Empire are. And this sense of, of the ruins and that strata of different civilizations piled up one on top of the other that you get in Rome. I think that's the kind of mood you get in a lot of these illustrations, uh, in these carceri, these prisons, because there seems to be a real hodgepodge of civilizations being quoted here. You know, it's partly Roman architecture that you seem to be looking at, giant Roman architecture, like the inside of the Colosseum or something. And then these Assyrian details and funny little Egyptian bits and strange birds of prey pop up. So they're incredibly weird and so sort of ahead of their times. I mean, um, who would have thought that uh, in, in, in Rome in, in the 1750s, someone would be churning out these strange images? As you said, even artists as famous as Escher were massively influenced by them. Yeah, and Turner as well. Um, when Turner was Professor of Perspective of the Royal Academy, he used these prints uh, to teach students about perspective. In fact, at, at the Tate, there's a lovely one, which he has annotated in his own hand and sort of drawn all sorts of red lines over to try and demonstrate how uh, Piranesi was a master of perspective. And of course, you can't pull off a series of prints like this um, with the sort of fantastical architecture and, and doomly light, unless you're an absolute whiz at perspective, can you? Mm. Um, but I think it's it's so interesting the how these were so popular because, um, as you say, Piranesi went to Rome and really probably no one did more than Piranesi to um, circulate and popularise the idea of these classical, you know, ancient Rome. His prints of the Colosseum and the, and the Pantheon and so on um, sold very well. But it was almost as if people had a yearning for the dark side of Rome too. Mm. It had enough of pretty pictures of the Colosseum and the Piazza Nuova, um, and they wanted something darker and spookier. Mm. It's like a descent into the catacombs, isn't it? Yeah. Or, you know, you know, under the Colosseum, they've got those things that feel like cells, but were actually where they used to keep the animals when they were going to let them loose on the Christians. The lions were going to chew up the Christians. There are these, there's these spooky bits of giant Roman architecture, yeah. and it's very much that mood. But just to go back to the influence of this stuff, just think how many people have been influenced by this. I mean, Harry Potter, right? Have you seen any of the Harry Potter movies? I have, yes. Okay, you know, all those scenes of, of Hogwarts and the castle um, and all those spooky cells and dungeons and all the drawbridges and portcullises and witches flying about, straight out of Piranesi. You know? yeah. And even yeah. things like the, the James Bond um, sets for um, the, where the baddies live in James Bond movies. You know, there's always some kind of towering thing under a volcano or something, <laughs> you know, straight out of Piranesi. And it's, he seemed to understand this appetite people have for the sort of mystery and the way it could be conveyed through a gigantic broken architecture. He just seemed to understand that a couple of centuries before anybody else, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and it's still going on now. I mean, it, Piranesi has been far more influential on our culture than Leonardo da Vinci. 
or Michelangelo um, or, or even Caravaggio in real terms, you know, this stuff is still going on now. This sense of these gigantic weird spaces through which people wander being heroic. Um, have you seen Mad Max, the, the great Mad Max film with Mel Gibson? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the Mad Max places like this, this Thunderdome, the places where Mad Max has to come and invade. And there's always millions of people, sort of poor white slaves being battered as they as they work on a treadmill to pull some gigantic levers and knobs and things and bits of creaking wood and all that. Pure Piranesi. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it probably tells us something rather ghastly about ourselves, really, doesn't it? That we love all this stuff and continue to love it. We like to indulge our, our sort of darker side and see what they're like. But ultimately, we want to be able to turn it off or turn the page. And we're not really there, are we? Yeah, I suppose it's a way of being incarcerated without being incarcerated. Yeah. As yeah. It were, yeah. Which gets us perfectly on to uh, the second thing we're going to talk about, Mendy. Um, as soon as the idea of prisons and incarceration and line of duty came up, one image flashed straight into my mind. Um, and that is, of course, that famous Van Gogh painting, uh, which is called, uh, well, it's got various names, but the prison courtyard is what it's usually called. Um, and it's it's a painting he he painted in, in 1890 um, in the mental home at uh, San Remy, which we talked about last week, if you remember, also sort of vaguely on the subject of being imprisoned. And when he was in the home in San Remy, um, the mental home, uh, he, he was not initially allowed to go out and paint because he still had these attacks and he did these terrible things to himself. Like he sometimes etched the paint, didn't he? And it, and it was all potentially full of lead and deadly, etc. So so he wasn't allowed to, to, to paint as freely as he wanted and certainly wasn't allowed to go out. So he would use the things he had with him and always carried around with him, his kind of library of images to influence him. And one of these images that he had with him was something that had been printed by Gustave Doré, who was um, a French painter who worked in, in London a lot, and who uh, in the 1870s did a whole series of depictions of Victorian London, it's got a pure Charles Dickens sort of country of, of London in those days. And one of the most famous ones of these was this scene of Newgate Prison. So, and what it is, it's so, so Dore paints, or rather prints, Newgate Prison, and this scene of um, these poor prisoners wandering around in this very confined and tall space. So it's almost like people wandering around the inside of a bottle or something, in, in the sense that it, it's so high, the walls around it. And this must have stuck with Van Gogh, who would have seen it when he was working here in, in, in Britain, in London, uh, as a missionary. And so when he was in San Remy, and again, himself feeling bottled up and imprisoned, one of the things he did was to paint um, his version, a colour version, of this haunting Gustave Doré uh, engraving that he brought with him. So he couldn't really go out anywhere, and his imagination was the only thing he could use to roam with. So it's a, it's a creepy and wonderful image, isn't it, Bendy? Yeah, it is. Um, but we were talking about Van Gogh's picture a few weeks ago of the night cafe in Arles, weren't we? And I was uh, commenting in my naivety when you first approached these pictures by Van Gogh, um, they can seem quite colourful and brash. And the although it's unmistakably a scene of of uh, incarceration, um, when you first chance upon this picture, it looks quite gaudy with all the greens and blues and the brickwork beautifully painted at the top. Um, just quickly going back to the Gustave Doré, 
Um, those, actually, those series of print etchings, he, he did about 180, along with a journalist called Blanchard Gerald, showing the, um, the shadows of Victorian London and all the squalor and grimness of it. Those actually um, owe a lot of uh, debt to Piranesi too. But as you say, Van Gogh was influenced by uh, Doré's um, depiction of the, sea, of the prison, um, copied it and colorized it and made it so, so interesting how Van Gogh seems to make it unmistakably his own. Um, if it wasn't for the mm. Doré print, you could think he'd mm. come up with that composition himself. He did a whole series of these copies there, and, then, and that's true of all of them. He did he did Millet's, he did Delacroix, he did Doré, because he just had this stuff available to inspire him. He couldn't go out and, and see the nature, as it were, so he had what he had in his suitcase. But, but all of them he makes his own. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I mean, it just shows the, the power of his imagination, his painterly imagination. Yeah, and do we think that it's said, and do you, I'd be interested if you agree, that he turns one of the figures, one of the prisoners who's going around in this never-ending circle. He makes yeah. some face of viewer, and that's supposed to be Van Gogh himself. Do you see that? I see that, yes, yeah, so I think so. Um, it's the guy at the front with the blonde hair. Yeah. It, it, interestingly, in the Doré, I think he's bald. So he's yeah. a sort of bald criminal and doesn't look, doesn't sort of look at us. He looks forward. He's not picked out in the same way from the crowd. Yeah. I mean, the sense of these poor guys, like, like hamsters on a wheel, going relentlessly round and round yes. and round and round. Um, no one is particularly picked out by the Doré. But in the Van Gogh copy, there is one guy who's got blonde hair, um, and a sort of striking cheekbony kind of face, who I think is is meant to be Vincent, yeah. Which, which I think makes so interesting a little group of detectives on the right who are sort of uh, gazing at the people. In the Doré print, they're supposed to be uh, not only keeping an eye on the prisoners, but sort of memorising their faces so they, they know who the villains are. Yeah. But in this picture with, with uh, Van Gogh, you get the idea that uh, he and they are being judged. And I suppose you could, it doesn't take much imagination to... To, to view the detectives looking at the prisoners uh, as um, you know, art lovers, art buyers, art critics looking at the artist. He's mm. he's always being judged, isn't he? A bit like a prisoner, mm. and Van Gogh is always being judged by someone else. And I suppose uh, that he felt that um, that destiny rather painfully because uh, not not long after he painted this picture, of course, he very sadly took his own life. That's right. Yeah, just a few months later. Um, I suppose that could be true. It's not something I've I've thought about really. But I'll tell you what the the detail that I have, see I've seen this picture a few times. It's in it's in Russia, isn't it? In in the Pushkin Museum in in Moscow. I've seen it a few times. Um, but only now, when you forced me to examine it in this sequence of line <laughs> of duty special investigations, did I notice one thing about it? Right. So you've got these spooky walls going up and these little windows and the poor prisoners going round and round and round and round. But look what's um, up in the air above the central window. You've know, got the little window there, just up above it to the left. Can you see what's up there, little white flecks? Little birdies. Butterflies. Oh, There's butterfly. two white butterflies. There's two oh. white butterflies fluttering around the prison, right? And, I mean, I've never seen it before, but I noticed it this time. Now, butterflies are always a symbol of freedom, aren't they? Of hope. I mean, you can't have a sad butterfly or, or a bad butterfly. So I think they must represent some kind of spirit of, of hope or um, escape or the potential for freedom. Um, that's how I, how I would read it. So you see these two little tiny little white butterflies perhaps change the meaning of the picture a little bit. But they're, um, they're a fabulous detail. Really, once you notice it, it the, the picture sort of rocks from despair to hope a little bit, I think. Good. Anyway, there's no hope at all, I think, in our next one, although I could be wrong with this, Bendy, um, because we're going to move on to, to Andy Warhol, right? Very 
famous image um, by him uh, produced in various versions. I've gone for for the one that I've always found the spookiest, really. Um, it's an image that, that's called the electric chair, and that's exactly what it shows, an uh, electric chair in Sing Sing prison. Um, empty, in this case, it's done its job. Um, so it's just empty, there's some leather straps hanging about, and this spooky, empty space in which the... Um, uh, in which the final deed is done. I don't know, do you know anything about these? Have you seen these before, these electric chairs by Warhol Bendy? I have. They're very grim. Um, mm. They take you right there, and you don't really want to be there, do you? Mm, uh, no. So this particular chair uh, is the, from the Sing Sing prison in New York and was to be used, the original photograph was, was charting the chair uh, because it was to be used in the execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, in 1953, mm. you were convicted of spying for the Soviet Union. That's right. They were supposed to have stolen the secrets of the atom bomb, weren't they? And yeah. were giving them to the Soviet Union. Yeah, the Rosenberg case, that was infamous case. And they were actually, as you said, you know, they were they were killed on this particular electric chair, the famous uh, electric chair in Sing Sing Prison. Um, yeah, and Warhol found this photograph on the front of a newspaper, didn't he? Um, I think it was a newspaper in, in 1953, so sometime after the Rosenbergs were killed. But he found it and used it and made a series of these incredibly spooky pictures. And the thing is that Warhol is is usually dismissed as a, as a frothy light presence, isn't he? I mean, he's interesting in all sorts of ways, but you don't often think of him as, as a profound artist. Um, and yet uh, in this body of work that he did, um, so he didn't just do electric chairs. There were there were other pictures that he did. It was, it was called the Death and Disasters series. And he did um, car crashes. Um, he did race riots. He did dark stuff like that. Um, the famous one of image of people who'd been killed in a jet crash. And it's the opposite of pop art, really, isn't it? It's as if he's using this occasion of um, of newspaper headlines and the front pages of newspapers to comment upon society in some darker way. And we could argue, I think, a lot about what these things actually mean, but but certainly one of the things they're about is, is how used we are now to newspapers, death, tragedy, oblivion, all just popping up on the news every day, you know, and now you hear it, you know, another 258 people killed in a car crash, killed in a plane crash, killed in a train crash, and you think nothing of it. Uh, we don't think enough about it. And it's something, I think, something about that distancing of, of the reader from the actual meaning of the images they're looking at, if they're looking at them in newspapers or on the television. I think that's something about what, what Warhol's trying to do here. Yeah, no, I never think of Warhol as a profound artist, really. Um, I was thinking about this um, electric chair picture in the context of the uh, recent court case in America. Have you been following this? Where uh, the photographer mm. Lynn Goldsmith won on appeal uh, a case against the Warhol Foundation where... Uh, she said that they were using her original photograph of, of the rock star Prince. Um, Warhol had used it without um, any acknowledgement or indeed, I think, any payment um, and had had sort of, you know, stuck some of his very simplistic colours on, made one of his screen prints and, and sold a whole series of them. And she she didn't get any credit for that. And um, the the US Appeals Court, uh, it was quite an interesting ruling about about copyright because it said that Warhol hadn't really transformed Lynn Goldsmith's original portrait photograph of Prince enough in order to make it a new work and so that she should get some credit. So I, I was thinking about that in, in context of this electric chair because I came across the original photograph that Warhol had, had taken. And it's interesting. I was trying to find out who took the original photograph of the electric chair. And mm. nobody knows. 
it's a supreme paradox of Warhol, isn't it? I mean, I, I do know the case you're talking about. Um, and the Warhol Foundation, uh, in, in what can only be described as a, as a cheeky, cheeky court case, um, pleaded fair dealing, didn't they? There's this thing in, in copyright called fair dealing, where if you're using something for the purposes of review or criticism, um, you're allowed to use it without seeking permission from the owner because the, that permission might lead to some kind of censorship or some kind of restriction on what you can say or do. So they proposed that this idea of fair dealing is what allowed Warhol to use those images of prints. Now, the, the irony here, the paradox, is that uh, anybody who tries to show a Warhol work today without specifically getting in touch with the Warhol Foundation and paying them zillions, hmm. will get taken straight in front of um, Inspector Bendor of the, of the yard and, and, and told to pay loads of money. It's a ridiculous situation, really, where most of Warhol's work, let's face it, most of it was based on imagery that he'd sourced from other people. Yeah. Um, and if the copyright laws were the same in the 1950s and 1960s as they are now, if this, this whole idea of intellectual property had existed earlier, he could not have made 90% of his art. Yeah. Um, so it is, it's just one of those very perplexing situations and an, an annoying situation. Uh, and it's as if, as if God has deliberately chosen Andy Warhol of all people um, <laughs> to try and make a stand against this copyright law. Because I, I was reading up all, you know, you, there's, as ever with these pictures by Warhol, there's reams and reams of guff about the death and disaster series, and in particular about the electric chair picture, which is probably the most famous of the series. And nowhere once does anybody ever give any credit to the original mm. photographer or the original photograph itself, which is quite profound because it's a picture of an empty chair in the empty room. And the only other thing of note is this sign saying silence hung over the yeah. door. And so the photograph itself is quite profound. And I think, you know, Warhol gets such a, a free ride for creating this profound artwork, basically by plagiarizing it, sticking a bit of glue onto a bit of silk, and a bit of ink. And hey, presto, you've got a, a whole series of, of profound Andy Warhols. Oh, no. See, there I disagree with you, right? There <laughs> I disagree with you. Because if you see one of these electric chairs, and this, this particular one I've chosen, I think it used to be called the pink electric chair. It's got a spooky flesh pink color. Um, I mean, look, listen, they're huge for a start. You know, they're, they're, they're great big wall-sized images. And the use of the tacky newsprint feel of them is quite deliberate. And when you blow up an image like that to the size Warhol blew them up, um, and the way that he printed them would emphasize their artificial origins. They take on this iconic presence, which is very different from just seeing the newspaper photograph in, in, a, in an actual paper. Mm. I mean, they become powerful in different ways. Scale, remember, is one of art's great weapons. And, and if, you, you know, if you lift this thing out of the tiny scale of a newspaper and put it up on a giant image on a wall, you're moving into the realms of creating icons, almost of religious imagery. You can't help almost, but you, you, your poor old brain can't help but start making these distant connections between emperors' thrones and things people are sat on. Yeah. You know, it, it becomes a different thing. It yeah. does become a different thing. He does transform the images. I get all that, but we wouldn't be having the debate and Lynn uh, Goldsmith wouldn't be having to go to court uh, if at the very beginning of the process, Andy Warhol had seen fit to just give a, even a teensy-weensy bit of credit to the person whose work he was actually either ripping off or enhancing, depending on your point of view. Because <laughs> um, you know, I just think it's a little bit mean-spirited of him, really. Um, 
I don't, the, think it was, I, I don't think it was deliberately. I think it just wasn't an issue then like it is now. Well, it's quite Now everything's worth money now, isn't it? Every, every little thing that you think you've invented is worth money. Well, it's just and good manners, why. isn't it? I saw the original photograph of the electric chair that he had in his studio. Uh, it's the press card. Um, so he he sourced it. It's not just taken from a newspaper. He sourced the original photograph. Um, and it has a caption on it. It says, wide world photo, uh, please credit. And <laughs> despite that little plea, mm. he never did. Well, I don't know about that particular aspect of it, to be honest with you. I haven't seen that. But I do know that I, I, it just wasn't the same kind of issue then as it is now. Let's face it. I mean, look, look Bendy, did Monet ever paint a tree that, that he invented? No, God invented the trees. You know, everything that artists have ever made has appeared as created by somebody else. I mean, there's an awful lot of that stuff going on. The facts matter here. Detective Sergeant Welding, come on, <laughs> get your notebook out. Well, well the, fact, fact. The, the fact is that a, a giant <laughs> image of an electric chair with a colour behind it that creates a, a, a spooky mood of a sort of underpass mood, um, the blurring of that image that you, that you get when you make a screen print out of it, the very idea that you'd bring an image like that into a gallery and confront people with it at a time when everybody else was expecting pop art and pictures of Superman and pinups from Vogue and whatever, you know, that all of that transforms the original image. And I, I'm perfectly happy with that, that, that side of it. I mean, at the time, they were, they were brilliant, inventive things to do. Um, and they hold up as well. They, they still look pretty strong. And I would count them amongst Warhol's best works. Yeah. Well, the U.S. Appeals Court would disagree with you, and I think we should probably, you and I, be on standby for a little call from the lawyers of the Warhol Foundation. Well, I look forward to discussing that with them. That's another story, of course. The Warhol Foundation and its behaviour towards um, towards people quoting Warhol is is just ridiculous, uh, and it casts them in a bad light. But uh, look, we've had our say on that. Um, uh, I think it's a terrific image, but it's time to move on because uh, the thing about the Line of Duty special that we're on is that there's loads of stuff to talk about, Bendy, and you can't spend your whole time no. talking about Andy Warhol, right? No, no, no. Because we're going to move on to uh, a proper kind of criminal. Um, Ned Kelly, uh, Australians. I know we've got several Australian listeners now and a few in New Zealand as well. We love Ned Kelly here in, uh, in Pomland, um, and we particularly love Sidney Nolan's paintings of him. Uh, and this is a, a very famous suite, probably the most famous set of paintings by, by an Australian artist of the 20th century. And, and it's a set of paintings of Ned Kelly um, riding around. It tells you his, the story of his, his short and brilliant life. So it's Ned Kelly going through the bush. It's Ned Kelly having fights with um, various police forces. It's Ned Kelly in the courtroom. And above all, it's Ned Kelly wearing that uh, infamous suit of armour of his, which he made out of bits of old agricultural machinery. Um, which was supposed to uh, deflect all the bullets fired at him by the coppers uh, in Australia. So, I mean, these are, and I hate to use this, this ghastly uh, cliched phrase, but these are iconic images and painted in around 1946-47. Um, I think there's a suite of over 20 of them. They're all in one museum in Australia. Um, but I've chosen the first one he did, which is the one you see most often. And it's just Ned Kelly sitting on a horse, gun in his hand, the sweeping emptiness of the Australian bush be in front of him, bright sunshine feeling to the air, and his costume, this handmade armour, 
is so simply represented, just black, basically. The black outfit, little black rectangle for a head with a little hole where the visor should be. It's so immediately striking. And it, 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 I think it, it marks the appearance of a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of painting, the Australian way in art. And of course, Ned Kelly is such an amazing character anyway. Yes, although Constable Waldy, I'm disappointed to hear you lionising him so much because you'd probably be one of the people he'd be firing his gun at um, as he marched towards you with his uh, his suit of armour. What's interesting about this picture of, of Kelly on his horseback is the um, you see through the mask and Kelly's not actually there, is he? So it's just the Australian uh, cloudy, bright blue sky behind him. Um, I'm not really sure I understand what's going on there, but uh, perhaps you could tell me. Well, what it is, Bendy, is it's a thing called not realism, right? So uh -huh. sometimes in art, people don't do things that look exactly like what they have in front of them. <laughs> they invent other ways of doing it. It's called being artistic, right? Oh, and what's an oversight? What he's done here is is found a kind of shorthand for Ned Kelly, a shorthand for his armoured outfit that basically does consist of this, this black rectangle with a slit in it. Sometimes there are eyes in the middle of it, by the way. In some of the other paintings, you do get eyes. In this one, you don't. Um, but listen, it's the best thing an artist can do, invent a new pictorial language. We know that Sidney Nolan was much inspired by, you know, Douanier Rousseau, the um, primitive French 19th century painter, much beloved by um, Picasso and others, who painted in, in a way that could be described as deliberately childlike, uh, which is to say just going down to the back to the basics and letting the imagery um, speak absolutely for itself without any ambitions to be realistic, no trompe l'oeil ambitions or anything like that. So um, he's invented this character, almost like a cartoon character in his own paintings, who stands for Ned Kelly. Um, and, and he keeps popping up in all the pictures wearing the same outfit. But uh, the, the, as I said, the really great thing here is, is this, just this invention of a, of a completely new way of doing things. And you do get such a strong sense of Australia from them. I mean, have you been to Australia to the bush where uh, the bushwhacker Ned Kelly used to roam? It really does look like that. And although it's not realism, it is an evocation of the Australian emptiness of this parched ground, these little clumps of distant eucalyptus just popping up. Any minute now, you can feel the kangaroos going to go popping across the picture. I mean, it, it could be Mad Max again, couldn't it? It's that truthful to, to the whole experience. So um, I, it's fantastic stuff. And, and far and away, my favourite Australian art as well, apart from being the most iconic. Good. Well, I'm glad it does it for you, but I admire your sense of optimism in assuming um, that I might know something about modern and contemporary Australian art. I do remember seeing these little uh, people with Ned Kelly uh, masks um, in the in the guise of this picture uh, in the Australian Olympic opening ceremony. They were all marching along doing a little dance. So this is, mm. as you say, iconic, uh, not wrongly used in this case. Mm, there you are, yeah. I mean, he's, he's the Australian Robin Hood, isn't he? Oh, 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 I did see a movie about him as well. I think it was, well, it's certainly up there in the top 10 worst movies ever made for me. Uh, and it was um, it was Ned Kelly with Mick Jagger as Nick Kelly. Did you ever see that? It's a 1970s oh, film. I think it was, uh, is it, who, who, was it, is it Tony Richardson who, who directed it? Um, yes, yeah, so Mick Jagger as Ned Kelly, um, uh, and uh, the 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 post. There's a poster for it, and, and the poster said, um, "If Ned Kelly were alive today, he'd probably be Mick Jagger," oh <laughs> which is obviously rubbish, but it does capture the the outlaw spirit that um, 
that Ned Kelly was famous for. Anyway, enough of him. Uh, let's get, let's retreat several hundred years uh, to your your something more up your street, uh, your kind of territory, Bendy. Um, so yeah, let's go for Rubens in our search for prisons and outlaws and things. There is one image that I think everybody who's interested in Baroque art uh, will keep coming across. Um, and that is an image of um, uh, two characters from Roman mythology called Pero and Simon. Pero was a daughter. Simon was her dad. Simon was put in prison and punished with starvation. He was going to die from, from not being fed at all. But his loving daughter, Pero, she came and saved him by breastfeeding him and, and keeping him alive. And this idea, which, which was then taken up as the idea of Roman charity, that was its official title, this, um, this idea became a really big deal in the Baroque age. And, and I think the best of all the many, many, Im- well, the second best of m- all the many images of it, uh, we'll get on to the first best in a minute, I hope, is, is the Rubens, uh, which uh, again hangs in the Hermitage in Russia. Fantastically strange picture of this young woman feeding this, this pained, troubled guy who's chained up in the prison, uh, breastfeeding him. So what do you think of that? Well, uh, you know, Ali, I, I love Rubens very much indeed, but I don't really like this picture, actually. Um, oh. You say that he's looking pained and starving, but that's the funny thing about this painting. He's not. So we have here the figure of uh, Simon being breastfed by his daughter, Peru. Um, and the thing about him is he, although he does look a little bit uh, pale and pasty in the face department, and he's got sort of old man's hair. His body is that of a mid-30s at the <laughs> oldest uh, athlete with um, finely toned pecs and uh, sturdy legs. Uh, he doesn't look at all as if he should be starving. Um, and that really tells us that this picture and pictures like it were really uh, more about perversion than um, morality or charity. Um, so, you know, it was the, the ultimate um, art patron's ideal of having an excuse to, to see pictures of old men like themselves suckling at the breast of a young nubile uh, blonde that, that Rubens has depicted here. So um, not really, uh, you know, I don't think we should be approving of this sort of thing, Constable, and uh, we should leave it in the, in the prison. Well, Detective Inspector Bendor, I have to say, I, I mean, I agree with you on the <laughs> motivation here. Um, I think it, it, I thought if I threw Rubens into it, um, I might be able to trick you into uh, defending it <laughs> stoutly uh, uh, to the death. Um, yes, it's meant to be a prison, isn't it? And there's a, some bars in the corner and it's all dark and spooky, but it, it does it does look, um, it, yeah, they do look uh, surprisingly well nourished to the pair of them. Um <laughs> Isn't it funny, though, how, how this image, I mean, you know, we've chosen Rubens, we could have done any number of other artists, everybody from Guido Reni, Dirk van Barberen, Honthurst, they all painted it. it there was just suddenly, um, uh, there was sudden fashion for pictures of Roman charity, probably for the reasons you mentioned. But, you know, I said right at the beginning that I think this is the second um, most famous image of this, or certainly amongst the second most famous. You, you know which is the most famous, don't you? Or the one that started this whole trend. Uh, is it the Caravaggio? It is the Caravaggio. And you see, I was hoping that by putting this in, I could sneak in and talk about Caravaggio instead, really, because that's the painting I much prefer. Um, and it's in Naples. It's, I think, one of the greatest religious paintings of the 17th century and, and indeed of all time. And it's called The Seven Acts of Mercy. And it hangs in the Church of the Trinity Misericordia, as I said, in Naples. Uh, still in situ. 
anybody ever going to Naples, don't you dare not see it. it it's absolutely stunning image by Caravaggio in which he somehow pulled off the trick of um, cramming seven acts of charity or mercy, like seven good things you can do for somebody uh, into one image. Um, so it's a novel's worth of stuff in one picture, one looming religious picture. And one of these acts of mercy is this Roman charity. So in the corner of one of the pictures, a woman, Pero, is, is breastfeeding Simon through, through the window of his cell. So this was obviously sort of a startling image uh, when Caravaggio painted it in 16, around 1610, I think it was. And, and that must be the start of all this. So in other words, Caravaggio does this as detail in, in the um, Seven Acts of Mercy, and everybody picks it out. And as the Caravaggio-esque craze um, careers through Europe, all these other painters, including Rubens, just a few years, a couple of years later, start to paint this image over and over and over again. And it really caught on. There's a few frescoes, actually, in places like Pompeii of, of the same story. Uh, should we, we should probably go back to the original source of the story, which is uh, by the first century Latin writer and historian Valerius Maximus. And he wrote these nine books of, of memorable deeds and sayings. And the story of Simon and Pero was supposed to be you know, the ultimate example of uh, family uh, piety and devotion. Um, but what's really interesting, I was, I was reading the original, or at least a translation of the original, um, and when he sets out, when Maximus sets out the story, the, it, it occurs two times, and the first time in much more detail is actually a woman breastfeeding her mother. And if you think about it, that's a much, a much more appropriate tale for what the point Maximus is trying to make. So um, the original story is, is a noble woman who was sentenced for some unspecified crime to die in prison. And then she's visited by her daughter who sees her mother starving and decides to breastfeed her. And then the, the prison governor sees this story and is so moved by it that he decides to free the mother. And as Maximus summarizes, um, I'll just quote a bit of it here, for what more unusual what more unheard of than that a mother should be nourished by the breasts of a child. So it's just turning nature on its head, and that's, that's how he makes his point. And then almost like a postscript, he says in the next paragraph that there's a, there's a case, another story of, of a woman doing this for her father. And he gives them names, mm. Simon and Perro. So actually, um, for a lot of time, particularly in, in illustrated medieval manuscripts, you get the story of the mother and the daughter depicted. Um, and then suddenly, as you say, starting with Caravaggio in the 17th century, um, everybody fastens on to the idea of, mm. the, of mm. the father and the daughter. And it very quickly becomes this idea of, um, you know, sort of perverse, perverted old blokes suckling at breasts. Mm. That tells you uh, an awful lot, doesn't it, about um, about the history of art and about particularly what we're doing in the Baroque age. Well, there we go. Let's leave it at that, Ben Dor. That was very interesting about Valerius and Maximus. Um, there's no point choosing um, the very best of these. I suppose it's a bit silly. I, I guess I think the most impactful and, and, and in some ways the most uh, noble and, and true to the great spirit of line of duty, I, I, I guess for me, would be the Piranesis because everybody's been influenced by those. And I'm, I don't know which ones you particularly liked, uh, Bendy. Yeah, I'll go with that. Always love the Piranesi Prince. Okay, that's it then. Piranesi is the uh, unofficial winner of our unofficial line of Ben line of Bendy <laughs> of our unofficial line of duty special, uh, and that's according to Chief Superintendent Bendel Grosvenor and myself, humble Constable Valdemar. There you go. Uh, anyway, yeah, there we have it. A completely meaningless investigation of prisons and bad guys in art. And uh, Bendy, um, you know how you. 
often disagree with me uh, and end up, uh, you end up really with egg on your face because I'm right and, and you're wrong, right? Well, um, we've decided to formalize this process with a whole new section of the podcast uh, where you and I go into battle. Wooly versus Bendy. Oh, yeah, that's more like a novel than a jingle, isn't it? Um, uh, anyway, Bendy, off we go. So the rules are pretty simple. You argue for something, uh, and I argue for something, and then we have a vote on Twitter afterwards, uh, in the week ahead, I think, to see who's won. So um, we're going to start, I thought, with portraiture and two 17th century painters who we both like a lot. Uh, one is William Dobson the underappreciated English artist who I keep going on about in this podcast and indeed anywhere else I can. And the other is the much more famous and louche Sir Anthony Van Dyke. And he's your favourite, right, Bendy? So the question is, who's really more significant? That, that, that's, I think, what we need to go for. I'm obviously the underdog here. Uh, Van Dyke is much better known. So I think you better go first, Bendy. Um, what is it that's so important about Sir Anthony Van Dyke. Well, Valdi, um, when you first suggested this segment, you said that the we were going to have sort of a line of, to debate, you know, a bit like the um, the Oxford Union or something, that this house or this podcast believes that William Dobson is better than Sir Anthony Van Dyke. You, I think you slightly tweaked it now to say more significant because you knew, you guessed immediately what dodgy ground you were on because uh, by, by no uh, standards... Uh, could William Dobson ever be said to be better than Sir Anthony Van Dyke? I mean, there's just no contest. Uh, hang on. So, I am rephrasing. I am rephrasing this contest right from the off. So, yes, the motion is indeed, who is the better artistic presence? Is it William Dobson, the English painter, or Sir Anthony Van Dyke, the louche Flemish painter? Who's better? Off you go, Bendy. Oh. Why do you call him Louche? Anyway, um, goodness, I don't know where to begin. Well, if we must indulge you, if you want to have an argument and to wang on about William Dobson <laughs> one more final time, because after this podcast, we're going to ban William Dobson from podcast. <laughs> is going to have a big red button, like a bleeping button. Every time you mention him, it's just going to cut you off. Anyway, um, Sir Anthony Van Dyke, born in 1599 in Flanders in Antwerp, uh, studies for a while with a, a little known artist called Henrik van Valen, but then is more famously taken on as a, as a pupil um, assistant by Peter Paul Rubens, um, works with him on a number of pictures. In fact, he becomes so good at working with Rubens that you can't really tell the difference between the 16 and 17-year-old Van Dyke or Rubens on the same canvas. So he, he establishes himself very quickly in Antwerp, then decides to have a jaunt in Italy, 1623, goes south to Italy, uh, studies Titian, works in Rome, Genoa, Palermo, and then comes back, uh, is even more successful in uh, Flanders, becomes court artist to the Archduchess Isabella, and then in 1632 is lured by King Charles I to London, becomes court painter, given a knighthood, and this already marks him as better than William Dobson. He's Sir Anthony Van Dyke, so he's, he's officially better, uh, not only, you know, 
uh, qualitatively better, but officially better. He gets a gold chain. Dobson didn't get a gold chain. Uh, Van Dyke gets a pension from Charles I. Dobson didn't get a pension. And Van Dyke uh, paints the wonderful series of pictures of uh, Charles I and his family, these equestrian portraits. Uh, Dobson, incidentally, for the benefit of the listeners, could never manage an equestrian portrait. I don't think he knew how to draw a horse. Um, and so on and so forth, until very tragically, Van Dyke is taken away from us at the tender age of 41. He dies in 1641. And, you know, had he been allowed to live on to a Rembrandt-like 60s, uh, goodness knows how much more famous Van Dyke would be and how much vastly he would overshadow William Dobson uh, in the annals of art history. But, Waldy, now it's your turn. I don't know how you get out of that, but good luck. Oh, oh, have you finished? Oh, God, just nodding off there. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? Um, yes, success, success. I heard something about success, success. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if, if, if success and gold chains were what it was all about, <laughs> then, you know, of course, the Sir Anthony Van Dykes of this world uh, would be arranged at the top of the Louvre, oozing success, left, right, centre. But fortunately for us in the world of art, it isn't just about how many gold chains you've got and how many knighthoods. It's about what you've brought to the nation and what you've brought and what your talent brings you. So, yes, William Dobson, a humble name, uh, a name which fits uh, a man who, who can, I think, quite honestly be called uh, the first English painter of genius, certainly the first native painter who really discovers something new and something fresh. And he grew up in, in circumstances which were very unhelpful. I mean, unlike uh, Van Dyck, he, he, you know, he, he didn't have it all laid out for him on a plate. He had to struggle right from the beginning. Uh, but somehow or other, he managed to cobble together a, 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 some kind of apprenticeship, possibly working with Francis Klein at the Mortlake Tapestry Factory uh, that Charles I had set up in London, possibly working for um, Robert Peake, who was one of those old-fashioned Elizabethan portraitists who painted very stiff portraits that were uh, so much out of date and which in many ways were the things that, that uh, Van Dyck went on to challenge. But in these uh, unpromising circumstances, young William Dobson, this little boy from London, tried hard to get himself an art education. Um, and then suddenly history intervened. And this is, this is the really big thing, right? Having never had anything on a plate, having never had a good time, having never found anything easy, he suddenly finds himself in a situation where, of all things, the English Civil War breaks out. I mean, I mean, this is the most momentous conflict in the whole story of British art. I mean, it ends, as we all know, with the beheading of Charles I. For heaven's sake, the English take the, you know, behead their own king and, and Cromwell takes over. And all of this happens in this in this squashed in four or five years of English history, which are unique to England and which are loaded with deep English significance. And yet somehow the fates, the gods of art, engineered it to drop William Dobson, poor little William Dobson from London, into the middle of this. And this guy, with barely any obvious training underneath him and behind him and beyond him, gets thrown into this conflict and has to stand up and somehow or other, he makes it to Oxford. The king probably makes him his official painter after Van Dyck, because Van Dyck dies in 1641, which is the only bit of good news and good luck that Dobson has in his life, really. Um, so the stage is open for him. And in Oxford, in the course of these four years, he begins to paint 
the most telling, the most dynamic, the most interesting group of British portraits that anyone had so far made. He has his own style. He paints with a certain foursquare roughness that seems incredibly English and potent. Whereas Van Dyck makes everybody wispy and elegant. And if they all, if, if Van Dyck's people could talk, they'd all talk with a nice lift, wouldn't they? Because they're that type. But <laughs> Dobson's people are hearty. They're the spirit of the butcher runs through them. So, you know, when Dobson paints someone, he makes them look two stone heavier. Van Dyck paints them, he makes them look two stone lighter. That's the difference between the two. And so this earthy British four square presence is unleashed on the Civil War and enjoying these four fantastic years in Oxford produces a gallery of people, of faces that really drop you in and really make you feel the presence, the reality of this incredibly crucial moment in British history. Uh, and don't talk to me about Van Dyck dying young. William Dobson died at the age of 35. As soon as the Civil War, as soon as Oxford had fallen in the Civil War, he goes back to London, dies in poverty in an almshouse. Um, and at the age of 35, that's it. That's his story. So almost his whole career, it's like the career of a kind of beautiful insect almost, is crammed into these four miraculous years where he turns up, he puts his finger on the pulse of British history, he changes British art, and then the fates conspire to get rid of him. I mean, tragedy, uh, pathos, brilliance, uh, English genius. You couldn't ask for more in an artist. Well, that's the, that's the tragic thing about Dobson is that um, he doesn't change the face of British art. I mean, he, you know, I, I grant you, he can draw a face. He can do a face quite well. And I've got uh, the catalogue of the only ever exhibition of Dobson that's been held, which was, I think it was in 1983. I've got that in front of me. And there's certainly some good faces in there. Um, but I think uh, what he lacks is that, that sense of life and joie de vivre and above all movement that Van Dyke brings to Britain. Because... Uh, you mentioned people like Robert Peake, you know, the, the, the jobbing English artist scene before Van Dyke comes is uh, painting people very stiffly, like little mannequins, um, not much of a breath of life about them, sometimes quite a good face. And Dobson manages, I think, to absorb a little bit of Van Dyke's movement, but his, his Civil War pictures, his Oxford pictures are quite formal and quite stiff. Uh, subjects are arranged with lots of stuff around them. It's all about the sitter. It's all about, you know, how, how important the, the patron wanted to be. Evidently, they've got a bust of so, somebody behind them and they've got various bits of uh, jewellery and um, armours that they're trying to show off. Whereas uh, Van Dyke gives much more humanity to his sitters. And I think, I think Dobson loses that. He can draw a face. He can draw a ruddy face. Um, you know, that's, that's fine. I'll give him that. But he can't do much more. And I thought, we haven't got much time, but I thought it would be quite good for our listeners to see a contrast up on the zczfilms.com website. Uh, Endymion Porter was painted by both Dobson and Van Dyke. And the Endymion Porter by Dobson, which uh, belongs to Tate Britain. And it's a very fine painting. I, I don't disagree. It's a fine painting. But Porter is standing there with a gun, uh, a dead hare to his left. He's trying to show that he likes hunting. There's a hunting dog looking up at him, a page boy rather stiffly to his left. Behind him, a bust of of the Duke of York and uh, swirling curtains on the right. So if Endymion Porter wanted to move, he couldn't because the composition is crammed so much full of stuff. Whereas um, Van Dyke's of, of not many years earlier, 
which is in a private collection, but we'll put a picture of it up. Um, Porter is, he's gliding through the scene. His hand is at his breast. There's not many accoutrements around him. So the emphasis is all on uh, on Porter's sense of person. It's not, he's not overwhelmed by what Dobson is trying to to say about Porter and, and because he can't say it in the character of the of the sitter himself, he has to stick various objects in. And I think that's a very interesting contrast. And and unfortunately, Dobson doesn't quite have that all-important sense of movement, which is what Van Dyke uh, brings to mm. British art. Um, I knew, incidentally, Wally, that you were going to chuck in the unfair jibe that Van Dyke always flattered his sitters. And I wanted to quote... Uh, one of the letters uh, of the Countess of Sussex, um, who complained about Van Dyck's portrait of her. And she says as follows, the picture is very ill-favoured, makes me quite out of love with myself. The face is so big and so fat that it pleases me not at all. It looks like one of the winds puffing, but truly, I think it is like the original. If I ever come to London before Sir Van Dyck go, I will get him to mend my picture, for though I be ill-favoured, I think... That makes worse than I am. I think that tells you all you need to know about the Countess of Sussex. Um, of course, these types of sitters that uh, that Van Dyke painted would never be pleased with their own image. Um, you know, any more than than uh, the people who shop at Harrods today would be would be absolutely pleased with it. And don't talk to me about movement. What's the point of movement when the world's crashing down around you and there's a civil war happening left, <laughs> right, and centre? What's the point of being able to glide gracefully through a banqueting room um, as if you're in the middle of a dance? If that isn't what's happening, Dobson went for something else. He went for another spirit. I mean, there are plenty of painters who have, you know, quick wrists uh, and can do that sort of movement thing. Um, there are very few who can capture the spirit of the times and have it flooding through them. And that Endymion Porter painting that you talk about, I and mean, that's incidentally, it's not the uh, the Duke of York on the pedestal. It's actually a bust of Apollo. Um, it has been put there in order to emphasise Endymion Porter's role almost in the court as a, as a cultural ambassador. So he's someone who who brings issues of, of art, of the theatre, of dance to Charles I's attention. He's a, he's a kind of Mycenaean in the court um, and yes some of Dobson's compositions are a little crowded and yes he isn't as elegant a dance floor painter as, as Van Dyck but that doesn't mean anything in this context because art isn't always about the same thing and sometimes the spirit of a painting is what counts and the little bits of clumsiness that you sometimes see in Dobson I find them totally endearing I mean to me that clumsiness is something that becomes almost a trait of great English art. If you look at pictures by Hogarth, that bluntness, the four squareness, if you look at um, some of, um, I mean, right up to Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud, this sort of bluntness, this inelegance that you get in British art, you see its appearance um, in, in Dobson. And um, it's almost the first time it's ever there, that thing that you're talking about. And you're prepared to criticise it because you like the posh stuff, you know, but I think uh, we should see it as um, as a positive. And it is absolutely not true that Dobson couldn't paint horses. Um, there's a couple of great horses in his art, and they're no worse than Rubens's horses, which don't look real either. Uh, but the great portrait of John Byron, the bulldog of the royalists, I mean, there's a great horse next to him. Only a bit of a horse, though, not the whole thing. 
Well, okay, it's a bit of a horse, but the Couldn't good bit the of the horse. And the, uh, the, uh, the Earl of Peterborough, there's another one. But the horses weren't his speciality either. Well, unless you look in the background where you quite often you see scenes of battle and then the horses are jumping over walls and things. His speciality is the faces, the spirit of the cavaliers, the, the king's men, these, these heroes of the Civil War who uh, stood by the king in Oxford and in these dark and difficult circumstances tried to fight for the crown, right? And he gets that. And his art, you absolutely get it. Uh, and because you don't seem to be able to touch or feel the spirit of William Dobson, the spirit of Britain in the Times, um, I'm going to call upon a, a witness to those times to help me here, uh, the great English poet uh, Richard Lovelace, who was imprisoned indeed at that time um, for supporting uh, supporting Charles I and for being on the side of the royalists. Um, he wrote, um, well, while imprisoned, he wrote a, a famous set of poems called uh, To Lucasta, dedicated to Lucasta, and there's one called To Lucasta Going to the Wars. I'm going to read this for you. This is the spirit of William Dobson. Tell me not, sweet, I am unkind, that from the nunnery of thy chaste breast and quiet mind to war and arms I fly. True, a new mistress now I chase, the first foe in the field, and with a stronger faith embrace a sword, a horse, a shield. Yet this inconstancy is such as you too shall adore. I could not love thee, dear, so much. Loved I not honour more. Loved I not honour more. Bendy. That's the spirit of William Dobson. And he painted um, a portrait of, of, of Lovelace, by the way, um, which we only know through what I think is some kind of studio replica that hangs in Dulwich Picture Gallery, but it's the iconic likeness of Lovelace. That heroic spirit of the Cavaliers, this brilliant appearance for four years in art, the way the fates picked him out uh, and made him the first English artist of note, put him down in this time. That's what's special about William Dobson. And if we're only talking about flexibility of the wrist um, and the flashy stuff that anybody can learn if they study under Rubens for long enough, um, there isn't that much of that in Dobson. Instead, there's something else. There's something native-born, something powerful, something that speaks across the ages. Mm. Well, if we're doing epitaphs, I'll give you Charles the first one, which he put on Van Dyke's grave. Here lies Van Dyke, who, while he lived gave immortality to many. I don't think they come much better than that in terms of artist epitaphs. But we shouldn't take, you know, we shouldn't invite the listeners to take my word for it, Wildy. Let's let's be objective yeah. about this and say, you know, uh, how, how has history, how has um, uh, art history judged Dobson versus Van Dyke? Do you, do you know how many books have been published on William Dobson? Do you know how many people watch Love Island on one, ITV? One. Do you know? Do you know how many books of on Van Dyke? Uh, by the way, there are shelf? two. There are two books on William Dobson. There was also an exhibition at the Tate Gallery in 1954, which I happen to have the catalogue for. Oh, really? um, but popularity was look. How many people voted for President Trump in America? What are you telling me that if you loads and loads of people vote for you, that makes you immediately better? No, I'm just saying that if we're uh, you, you originally began by saying who's more significant. Um, hmm. And clearly it is, is Van Dyke by any stretch, any, the, any objective measure. The old art history liked him. The new art history is thinking afresh, is how I would oh, put it. But okay. let's not, let's not, you and I could talk about this for far too long yeah. and talk ourselves into the grave. Let's put this to the test. We are going to put up some pictures by these, these, these two painters, the great William Dobson and Van Dyke. Um, and people can have a look at those. They can listen to our conversation. And we're going to put up a Twitter poll. 
on my uh, Twitter feed, your Twitter feed, and we're going to see. You know, people have heard, people can look, people can decide. What do you say to that, Bendy? A very good idea. And I would like to say, in case the lawyers who work for the William Dobson Foundation are listening, uh, it's just a debate, and I think he's a great artist, really. <laughs> I quite like Van Dyke as well, but um, yeah, of course I do. Uh, anyway, we'll see. We'll see. It's going to be interesting seeing what the uh, the Twitter response is. Hopefully, William Dobson, who needs to be recognised as something more than he is, hopefully we've, we've we we can manage to raise his profile a bit. But anyway, away from these arguments, away from the boxing, you know, away from the the conflict. Let's go towards something sweet and lovely. Let's go to that little place we can go where it's joy, joy, and joy. <laughs> On the wall. Oh, Bendy, uh, good. I mean, having clearly uh, outpointed you in the uh, in the debate there, in the Wardian versus Bendy debate, um, it's good to get on to something where I think we can all agree um, there, there is no conflict at all, and that is your choice, my choice, for on the wall, the things we'd like to have having on our wall, if we could have anything we wanted at all. What's yours? This week, Melody, I've gone for a picture of shipbuilding by Sir Frank Brangwyn. Uh, and it belongs to um, the McManus Gallery in Dundee. Painted um, in the early 1910s, we see two large wooden ships looming above us, and underneath are the shipbuilders writhing and toiling away as they manufacture various parts of the ship that are going to be hauled up to the ships above us. Now, I've chosen this because I think Sir Frank Brangwyn uh, is a criminally underrated artist. Um, he's was born in Bruges, actually, but he's largely regarded as British and, in fact, uh, a Welsh artist. And he was born in 1867, died in 1956. And he, he, he was painting at that very difficult time when uh, it was quite problematic to be an artist because you, you're contending with the advance of photography. Um, and really, you know, throughout the history of Western art, painting has, has gone through every mode and fashion that it could possibly go through. If you're a painter, how do you respond to that? How do you advance... Um, art at all. And Brangwyn, not only was he brilliant, as you, as you say, sometimes dismissively with the wrists, he was largely self-taught, um, but he, he could handle a brush fantastically well, and he was a great draftsman. Um, but he he just managed to, I think, add something to painting. Um, and we see it in this picture of shipbuilding, because uh, above all, he decided to change the focus of how you uh, what you paint in scenes like this and that's why the scene of the figures of the of the workers working away is so important they're they're almost balletically painted you can see the muscles rippling um and as they're heaving up the various bits of the ship it's so important in how the picture works because although when you stand in front of this picture and it is enormous i've stood in front of it in dundee it really hits you the ships take mo up most of your field of vision really the little figures are are so important and Brankwin. Uh, decided very consciously to focus on on the labouring in scenes like this uh, and, and the workers. And I think that's quite original, uh, certainly in British painting at the time. Um, and he does it in a very sort of unsentimental way. Um, so it's not like a sort of pre-Raphaelite, John Ruskin view of, of labourers. Um, and I think uh, pictures like this are underappreciated. I'm, I'm quite surprised by how, how little Brangwyn uh, works like this can fetch at, at auction when they come up for sale and he does also and i would encourage listeners to also look at his etchings online which are, are fantastic and full of impact um and i would like a brangman on my walls i would like this one because i i would like to help wave the flag for someone who i think is underrated hmm. 
Sounds like you'd have to build a bigger house to have it in if it's that big. Um, I, I didn't know how large it was. It was one of the confusing things about it, really. Um, I think I could imagine it more successfully if it is genuinely very big, um, because the, the sense you have of it, uh, and I speak as someone who knows very little about, about Brangwyn and, and nothing about this picture, um, the sense you have of it is of these these skeletons almost of the uh, unfinished boats looming right over you almost a bit like those Piranesi things we were looking at earlier um giant space and then these little figures at the bottom scuttling around building the thing so i imagine um it's a painting that depends very much on scale because i can i can think of it as something very powerful uh, if if that whole sense of the looming boat towering over you if that is conveyed uh, if it's a small picture um i think it'd be quite easy to miss because it's hard to know then what the characterful thing about it is and for me that's i suppose that's always been the slight issue i have with brangwin I'm, I'm just not quite sure what it is he does um and, and by that i mean there's a there's a small sense there of, of a particular vision of, a, of an artist who really stands out for this or that reason those kinds of issues um i can't really answer so um, maybe this is great that it's going up there because uh, well, you can sit there and answer me what it is that makes Brangwyn special. Uh, and if I get a chance to pop up, I can look at it and, and find out what makes Brangwyn special as well. Um, uh, yeah, an interesting, an interesting task it's setting you. Good. Well, but not much time, so we better move on to your choice quite quickly. Yes, but yeah, mine is mine is more direct. <laughs> it couldn't really be. I don't think it could be any more direct. Really, it's by a painter called Maria Lasnig. And I came across it by accident. Um, I, I had um, an illness a few years ago. I had a, 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 an embolism um, and this thing that, that blood clot in my leg and it went up to my lungs and I was really seriously ill for a while. So um, when I was recovering, I went off to this um, sanatorium in, in Austria, of all places, um, and in this beautiful place in Carinthia. Um, I was sort of lying, lying in this bed, uh, getting better, and eventually I did get better. And um, I took a trip with lots of other people at this place um, to a town called Klagenfort near in Carinthia. And it turns out that this woman called Maria Lasnig had grown up in Klagenthorpe, and there was an exhibition of her work in the little museum in Klagenfort. And I, because I'd been starved of art for a while, I thought, oh, I must go and see this. I went in to see it. It completely blew me away. Uh, this painting wasn't in it, but there are other paintings by her of equal power, really. Um, and what she is, is she's one of those uh, interesting women painters who are basically forgotten for nine-tenths of their career. So she um, was, was born early in the 20th century, but it really wasn't until after the year 2000 when she was in her 80s and then, and then in, later on in her 90s that anyone took any notice of her. And these late paintings that she did are extraordinary. So this one um, is a self-portrait. It's called You and Me. She painted it when she was 86. She's naked and very full frontal. Nothing's being hidden. Um, she's got two guns in her hands. One is pointing straight at us. The other gun is pointing straight at her head. And she's staring at us with this incredibly fierce expression. So, I mean, you cannot look at this picture without being stopped in your tracks. Um, it is so confrontational, so direct. And this idea of you or me, you know, is the gun going to be fired at us or is she going to shoot herself first? That, that leaps across as a psychological, tense, 
thing, you know, as, as a sort of challenge, leaps across at you and, and just immediately involves you in this very striking, very powerful image. And I just love the fact that an 86-year-old woman can paint like this. I love the fact that artists such as Maria Lasnig are still there to be discovered, artists who are forgotten for big chunks of their career. I love this painting. It's so direct and powerful. I'm not sure I could live with it forever, but I'd love to live with it for a week or so and to see it better. So uh, You or Me uh, by Maria Lasnig. That's my choice for On the Wall, Bendy. Dramatic stuff. Powerful. I can imagine it would get the blood circulating if you're recovering from an invalidism, which I'm sorry to hear you had to, that ordeal. Um, I'm very healthy now. It was just that one little time. I mean, normally when people say they're going off to a sanatorium in Austria to recover for for an illness, it means they come back with surprisingly taut looking face um, and looking a few years younger. But uh, I'm, I'm sure you didn't go off for a facelift. No. <laughs> I've never had a facelift. <laughs> my hair is my natural colour. Um, I am the man that you see in front of you. Good. Well, it's a very powerful picture. Um, I wouldn't like to have it on my wall. It's a little bit too confrontational, too... Uh, in your face for me, uh, especially at this stage of the pandemic, when frankly I've had enough of, of uh, <laughs> being at home. I want to look at pretty pictures, but I, I'm glad it uh, floats your boat. And um, I'm I, I'm fully in accord with you for discovering um, and rediscovering little-known artists who deserve to have more attention. Oh, oh, there you are. So, listeners, uh, 53 in America, uh, lovely new person in, in Prague, other wonderful new person in Malta. Uh, that's, the end of, uh, that's the end of this podcast, actually. You might want to know two things. Who did that exciting music for our new features, the jingles? Well, that was the brilliant Simon Russell, who does all our jingles. He's the, he's the Beethoven of the podcast jingle. Uh, the programme was produced by, by Taya Osterholt, who is um, our fantastic producer who brings it all together and if you want to see all these things that we've been talking about especially this dramatic picture by maria lastnick it's all on the zcz website on the podcast pages so do go there and enjoy it and don't forget vote waldy when the vote gets to twitter uh, but from me it's goodbye and cheerio from me waldy and bendy